Save or Die, adventure number 60. Got it right. Five more and we'll be qualified for Social Security. I guess so. Or something like that. Who are you? Who am I? I am Zool. No. This is DM Mike, as usual, with DM Liz. Hello. DM Glenn. The senility's already hit, folks. Sorry. Also known as the creepy old guy. <laughs> and the author of Barrow Maze, Greg Gillespie. Hi, Greg. Hello. Hello. Hello, Greg. He's here to be witness and answer questions as we review his work, Barrow Maze, a Labyrinth Lord adventure for low to mid-level characters and seems to be pretty much the definition of the mega dungeon. And, oh, we're going to have words. (laughs) Words are good. But Glenn's just just sensitive because he's playing through it right now. My basic group, my my DM is running a Cerbero maze as we speak. Well, not as we speak, but I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> right now. Can you hear the dice? Yeah. But first, we're going to skip the what we've been doing section and take a listen to Basic Impressions with Demon for a return opinion on saving throws. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. But which I would be willing to share with you. To do then now would be retro. To do then then was very nautro. Yeah, if you will. It's coming. What? The idea. The spark. I got it. I got it. Basic impressions. This is T-Man from Pennsylvania, and today I'm going to talk a little bit about saving throws. And the reason I chose saving throws for today is because they confuse me. I think they're that one area of classic D&D that's uh, very, very open to interpretation. So, for example, do you use them for only, you know, specifically what they say in their name, which is what I used to do when I first started playing? Um, or do you use them maybe as a more general save, which is kind of what I'm doing now? And sometimes it's also not clear, well, would you use an attribute check or would you use a saving throw? Uh, Right now, my current philosophy, and some of this is thanks to um, the podcast here uh, where I actually asked a question on this not a a while ago, maybe a month or two ago, is that I tend to use saving throws when the PC has to react all of a sudden to something um, that's coming at them um, rather than an attribute check. So an attribute check might be, okay, they want to lift a very heavy stone, and obviously they might use a strength check, or they want to um, try to run real quickly over a bridge. That might be a dexterity check. Um, and also with the saving throws, I do tend to use them a little bit um, loosely, a little beyond specifically what their names are. 
So what I'm going to do is go just take a few minutes and go through the five saves as listed and talk a little bit about where they can be used. And I'd also like to try to point out some areas where they seem a little bit vague or perhaps open to interpretation. So the first one on the character sheet is Poison or Death Ray. And the poison is pretty obviously used to save versus dying from poison that seems to reflect strong general health. Um, I also think you might be able to use this maybe if a character wanted to try a potion and wanted to resist the effect of that particular potion. Um, if it was something that was undesirable, maybe they didn't know what it was and wanted to try it. I, I think that's a real possibility. And the death ray seems to be um, for very specifically against death spells that you would use this um, when you're... Um, get attacked by death spell rather than the save versus spells. And I believe it can also be used if you're, uh, it depends on your own set of rules. You know, some people say zero hit points and you're dead. Others might say, okay, zero hit points, but maybe you get a save versus death here to stay alive or until um, a cleric or somebody can um, stabilize you. Uh, magic wands, pretty much as they say that they can be used um, when you're being attacked by another magic user who's specifically wielding a magic wand rather than just doing their normal spells. Um, I think it could also be used as a dodge, like a general dodge, maybe against some kind of beam or a laser weapon. You know, maybe if you allow a little science fiction blending into your games. Then the next is turn to stone and paralysis. And to me, it's kind of interesting that they split them. Because paralysis would probably be more of a natural effect, maybe from a plant toxin or a poison. Whereas turn to stone is clearly a very magical effect, usually from a gaze attack, you know, maybe a medusa or a basilisk. Uh, in, in this case with the turn to stone paralysis, I would probably give a wisdom bonus, allow the player to get a wisdom bonus um, for turn to stone. Although probably not for natural paralysis, say if it were a poison or something. Um, but probably for a magical effect, I would allow that. Now, Dragon Breath, uh, what the book says is you can use it and you can get half damage against Dragon Breath, of all things. That it seems to be sort of a reflex. The Dragon Breath is coming at you, so you're able to throw yourself maybe back against a rock or something or into a little alcove and avoid the, um, the main thrust of the Dragon Breath. However, it could also be used as a general dodge or to reflect maybe a check against traps. So, for example, if there's a pit trap and your character steps on it, maybe they could get the save versus dragon breath, you know, not to fall in or to grab the edge of the um, edge of the trap so that they don't fall in. However, what I would caution is I, I this shouldn't be used in regular melee or ranged combat. Um, that's just against your regular armor class. You, sh- I don't think you would get this special save in here. And the last is the one that, well, it's really the, the most important or seems to be the uber stat, and that's spells or magic staff. And this seems to be used to completely avoid the effects pretty much for all spells. Um, at least in my games, opponents are probably using this one more, mo- most of all of them, uh, because you might have an opponent using a spell against the PCs there. So um, one thing that I think is not always clear in the spell rules is, well, do you get the save versus spells? Do you not get the save versus spells? Do you always get it? Um, and do any of this, would any of the spells you know, more specifically go with the other saves, that seems to be something that you have to um, decide. For example, if there's a Petrify spell or a Turn to Stone spell, you probably would use the Turn to Stone versus the spells. So I think that that's something that Classic could have done a little bit better, maybe special, specifically say, well, this spell is against this save, this spell is against that save. Um, but it doesn't, and that's just what it is. So that's my take on saving throws. Um, 
you know, some people prefer to use attribute checks for everything, and they kind of do away with the saving throws altogether. Um, and some other games and versions of classic D&D, I know um, Castles and Crusades does that, that they just use attribute checks. However, if you're playing classic D&D, I, I would think twice about just pitching out the whole system uh, because they improve with levels. So they're a way to sort of reflect that, okay, the character is adventuring more. They're getting better at what they do. They're getting better at avoiding traps and avoiding damage. And they're also a real good way to reflect differences among classes. So if you have demi-humans, elves, and halflings, and dwarves, and you're imposing the level limits, um, it is nice that they do get a little bit better saving throw. So at least they get something better, you know, all the way along. However, as with everything classic, play it the way you're most comfortable. You won't break the system. I hope that my little... um few minutes here, spur some conversation or spur some thought among you or among the other folks on the podcast. Um, and thanks to Mike and Liz and Glenn and everybody at the podcast to um, for allowing me to talk for a few minutes. And that's all for this time. And I wish everybody good gaming and most importantly, more gaming. Interesting comments. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for the recording. Um, uh, maybe I'm just nitpicking a little here, but just to point out, Castles and Crusades... Uh, the attribute checks, which they use in lieu of saving throws, they modify for level as well yeah. and class. You're, so You're right, Mike. You are nitpicking. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> okay. Now, that being said, I think, you know, the idea of using saving throws to react and attribute checks for actions of the player character, I think, is really the best way of handling it. I never thought of that. Well, it, it just came up when we were talking about, at one time, attribute checks or saving throws, and it's like, well, when do you know how to use one and not the other? Oh, you're right. And, oh, of course I'm right. No. <laughs> you're, you're th- what do you think, Liz? Um, I think, as with many things in basic, you know, saving throws are something that... You know, everybody has their own opinion on, and virtually every DM is going to utilize how saving throws work in the games they run differently. Um, I don't want to go so far as to say that there is no right or wrong way to do it, but I think there's a lot of wiggle room in how you handle them. Oh, yes. It just depends on, you know, what makes you and your players the happiest. Mm-hmm. Or most satisfied. Yeah. Players are rarely happy when they blow their saves, but you know. <laughs> hey, it happens. Yeah, no. Yeah, or we could just play Swords and Wizardry, which has one saving throw. Bah, 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 and fi. I knew that was going to come up. I knew that was going to come. Of course, up. it does. Yes, it does. Yes. Do we have any emails, Liz? We do have emails. We have. Three emails to read from the um, episode from the uh, Mazes and Perils episode. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Liz, <laughs> Liz excuse me. Hey, Greg. Yes. Yeah. You're family now, so just like fight your way into like talking or something. Yeah, <laughs> no feel problem. free to give an, give an opinion. Feel free to just jump in there. Um, anyway, got three emails to read. We did actually have four. Um, however, the fourth email that talks about Mazes and Perils is a very lengthy and well-thought-out review. Um, we don't have time to address it in addition to the other three, but we're going to read it. It's from DM Offshade, 
and we'll be reading his in our upcoming email episode, number 62. Which will be absolutely promise. (laughs) Which will be a three-episode mini-series. It just might. We are getting tons of emails in. And voice calls. Oh, wow. So, anyway, our first email from the Mazes and Perils episode is from R.C. Pinnell, otherwise known as Thorcammer. Hey, Thorky. Thorky, the president of your fan club. Yes. He writes, Yes. Salutations, everyone, and hail to the queen. (laughs) I wonder who he's referring to. He could be talking about me. I think it's Mike. I had no idea, Glenn. (laughs) I had no idea about you either, so... Don't they, don't they hang people in Oklahoma for that? <laughs> they hang people in Oklahoma for a lot of things. And Texas even more. Anyway, um, he goes on with a quote, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing. And from that day it was as one dead. Um he then goes on to talk about the descriptions of kobolds. Uh, <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, wow, where did that go? Well, anyway, um, points out that the Moldvay rules describe kobolds as small, evil, dog-like men, yada, uh, yada, yada. Holmes, these evil, dwarf-like creatures, samo, samo. Oh, a dwarf's e- a dog? Yeah. 1E um, e Monster Manual. The hide of kobolds, they have no layer, or they have no hair, and they're small horns. Um, OD&D just says, treat these monsters as if they were goblins, except they will take from one to three hits. Uh-huh. And CM, Cook Moldvay, or I know, CM, would that be what? Cook Minster? Companion, yeah. Companion, yeah. maybe? Yeah. yeah. Goblins and kobolds see well in dimness or dark. Uh-huh. Um Thorkhammer goes on to say, clearly the concept of the kobold is lacking the definitive description that this intriguing race of beings slash creatures deserves. One (laughs) (laughs) One could even extrapolate from the minimal information that is available that variant types of kobolds exist, with each, as above, possessing abilities and skills common to one another and unique to the particular clan or tribe. I.e., the dog-like men might have shaman leaders capable of shape-changing into an actual dog or wolf due to a condition of lycanthropy exclusive to their clan. Did not 2E or some ahem later splat book appear concerning the biology and history of these beings? If not, seems like there should be such a tome as a home supplement. Anyway, good potting, as usual, the Thorkinator. Okay. Organator. That's a I, new one. I believe um, the Book of Humanoids in 2E Splatbook covered kobolds. Um, anyway, Sorry. he had a couple of asterisks after the little poetic quote at the beginning. Uh-huh. And at the end of his letter, he says, An idea that I am mulling about for a home specific Mazes and Perils 2, Don't Weep, V-Man, adventure using kobolds and a lost queendom. Oh, I look forward to reading it. Yeah. Can't have too many modules. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, like I said, uh, Book of Humanoids, I believe, covers kobolds. Uh, mm. 
But other than that, I think they may have, didn't they do an ecology article in Dragon about kobolds? About kobolds? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. I know I mean, that there is someone who is working on a book about kobolds, kind of a, an ecology, biology booklet. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say David Oakham, but I do not recall specifically who it is right off right out the gate. Um, But he's one of the guys in the old school gaming um, Facebook group. We Um, love them. We do love them. But anyway, he was, yeah, he was um, posting some pictures and stuff, some of the artwork for the book and everything, and it looks really cool. And I'm not doing... And his kobolds look like puppies. So, (laughs) So, folks, second email. So... (laughs) So, kobolds uh, treat them like goblins, except they drag their butts on the ground. Uh, so. <laughs> settle down, settle uh, down. All right. But anyway, I tried Complete Book of Humanoids, start there, and then maybe Dragon. And if he comes out with that book, man, we can review it. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. If, yeah, if it fits in our you know, basic world. Yeah. Because, right. you, know, you know, everything else are completely different games, 2E, 1E, you know. It's utterly incapable of being used in classic. Greg, we have a special dead horse <laughs> we keep for Mike to beat. Yeah. It's getting a little gamey, but, you know, he's happy, so. Yeah. That's what matters. Yeah. yeah. Almost kind of a pinata, really. Yeah, there you go. I get the, I get the candy. Do we have another email? We do. Yeah. Our second email is from James, mm-hmm. and James writes... I was listening to the latest show about Vince's Holmes retro clone, Mazes and Perils. The subject came up a few times about people's objections and complaints with some of Vince's previous ill-fated works. I'd just like to say that I can't help but regard these people as ridiculous, self-righteous cretins. Don't beat around the bush, James. Tell us what you really think. (laughs) Well, I don't have to do anything this show. (laughs) I suggest that anyone who has a problem with people like Vince or Thorky going through the effort to put out content for the OSR keep their sniveling little opinions to themselves. I look forward to hearing my little rant read on an upcoming podcast. (laughs) Keep up the good work and stay classy, San Diego. Thank James. you. Thank you, James. Thank See, we read it on the show, even though it was really kind of politically correct. And you know, I did the check. Did the check? Did the check? Be around the bush. Did the check go through, though? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, we're thanks, James. James. Thank you, James. Thank you, thank you. And our last email that we'll be reading today is from Vile Traveler. Hey. And Vile says, "Nice cut." That nice podcast, guys, Thank and you. you spotted the thing with the bag of devouring. Yes, <laughs> vile. vile. Was he the uh, artist? He was the layout guy. On ah, okay. I put I made I did that drawing of the uh, the gold the hand with the gold in the bag, and he put it right next to the bag of devouring. <laughs> so he's making a little comment there, I guess. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for the emails. Remember, if you want to send a comment in, just email to saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. That's right. Or call our voice line, Glenn. Liz? 
Greg? I never use the phone. What are you talking about? I will, I will use the Vince method. 405. <laughs> it's on our announcements. Yes, it is. It always is. And now, without further ado, let's move into game on and start talking about Barrow Maze. The adventure, the experience, the death of many PCs. Well, we can hope. <laughs> you can hope. <laughs> okay, what do we got? Barrow Maze, it came out in... Let's just start from the beginning here. Why don't we ask Greg? Greg, when did, when did it come out? Um, end of January, start of February in... Uh, this year? Yeah, this year, 2012. Okay. And what what are the origins of uh, of this? Is this your group's uh, campaign or? Yep. Um, initially, what had happened was I had made a bit of a sandbox uh, game setting, and we I, I sort of had some ideas for you know parachuting and adventures in, depending on what they wanted to do, and uh, and then they started after a while changing their mind at the last minute, creating lots of extra work for me to prepare, so I um, just decided that, you know, I think it would be a lot easier for me if I just had s- sort of a mega dungeon environment that, uh, you know, I could I could build as we moved along, and it just was easier prep for me, so that's basically how it came about. Okay, okay, to our benefit. Or, or to the definitely not to the benefit of your PCs. Well, yeah, I'm on my third one. How about that? <laughs> so, it sounds about right. <laughs> oh, I've got stories about this place, boy. <laughs> um, let's see what else? Oh, um, go ahead, Mike. Liz. Sorry, I somehow got muted. Never mind. Okay, yeah, I heard you talking through the wall, but I didn't hear you on the show, and it's like, wait a minute, we lost Liz. Ask him. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you were saying, Liz? Oh, I was just saying, I wonder how many other Mega Dungeons started out that way with the DM just thinking, you know, if I made this really huge thing, it would be so much easier for me prep-wise, no matter what my players decided to do. <laughs> you mean something like Castle Greyhawk? Something like, you know, was Gary just just thinking, you know, no matter what they do, I'm going to have something ready for them. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very, very practical sort of approach to, you know, um, preparing your game. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's uh, that's what I went with. Okay. Okay. How many players did you have originally for this? Um, I have... Um, I have three players that are there all the time, uh-huh. and then there's another two or three that have that sometimes make it, sometimes don't. So um, we can have as many as uh, six or seven around the table, but it's usually three or four. So it's it's aimed at like uh, about a party of like three or four. Or do you allow multiple uh, PCs, or do you just fill or out hand- with hirelings? Yeah, we fill out, we fill out with uh, hirelings and uh, henchmen, and um, that's 
part of the reason why uh, Meat Shields came about, the uh, um, yeah. the classic fantasy hireling and henchman generator uh-huh. um, that uh, Chris Geisel and I um, whipped up, is that uh, we normally have uh, a smaller group, so we need to fill up the ranks a bit. And uh, growing up, we didn't always have a large group of people to game with. So it just sort of, and we, and we switched DMs after every adventure. So it was pretty common that the DM would carry an NPC that would usually switch over to a PC when it wasn't their turn to DM. So somebody was basically um, muscle uh, for the adventure. And so I do that as well. And um, and then we, we usually have a group of around eight when it's that's PCs and hirelings and torchbearers and so on. Yeah, people. The feel. entire expedition. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised when people talk about you know back when we used to game with eight or nine or ten, twelve people around the table, and it's like, well, except for club meetings, which usually happened about once a month, you know, most of the time we gamed three, four people. Yeah. Yeah, that's when I was growing up. Yeah, that was my so, experience too. So I'm like, where are you finding ten or twelve people to game with on a regular basis? And at our age, we're lucky to find three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm. I have no idea what you're talking about, Glenn. Shush. <laughs> Shush. You've got some interesting stuff in here. Um, we've already run into the tablets. Some yeah. of them. <laughs> uh, I liked that play on the old, you know. The, the literary and mythological basis of tombs with the curse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, rarely get worked into. You know, normally it's, there's a tomb, loot it. Uh, now, Greg, you're, you're on Dragon's Foot, right? Yes. I'm playing in Odinist's games. And, okay. Uh, I know he's what's your, what's your ni- name on Dragon's Foot? Guild of the Axemen. Yeah. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, that's Guild of the Axemen. I can tell by the picture. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't seen you. I got well. I just go pretty much to the classic D and D section and like looking for gamers, and that's it. So yeah. sure. So we've been, we've been collecting tablets. We're going to try and sell them to the Franklin Mint after the game. <laughs> uh, but we learned early on. Try, try reading them all at once. Oh yeah. Um, my, In funny voices. My my, not, my nine-year-old grandson plays sometime, and it's like his first experience in a D&D game, and he decides to read it, and he immediately falls asleep. Oh, yeah. And, is. and both me and the DM said, you are very lucky that you just <laughs> fell asleep. Hey, Liz. Yeah? <laughs> Remember the old Call of Cthulhu games we were on? Haster's a bastard. Haster's a bastard. Haster's a bastard. Wait for, because every time you say his name, you know there's supposed yeah. to be a chance he shows up. And, and also, and also, I know, we we caught on real quick that like churning is going to be next to impossible in this place. Well, yeah, I don't know if it's a- next to impossible, but it's more challenging. And, and it, what happens is that when turning is like I, I think the turning table in Labyrinth Lord is very generous. So that's the first thing. That's where the you know the change in, in turning came from. And then the other thing I wanted to do with that is that I wanted turning to become part of the resource management. Ah, okay. That was something and, I wanted to ask. It talk, so you, you, you talk you, about how turning becomes progressively more difficult. Mm-hmm. Does it reset itself when a new day comes, or yep. does it just keep on going? That was something that I wasn't quite clear on in the description. Yeah, I think it says um, everything on the table increases by one, and then for each turn attempt, the difficulty will increase by one for that cleric per day. Okay. And uh, our games always end outside of the dungeon. 
Ah, okay. Ah, so they don't camp out in a section of the dungeon. Yeah. And- no, absolutely not, because bad things will happen. Yeah. And, and I think it. I think it takes away from the. If you can camp out in the dungeon, I think it takes away from the mystery and uh, and uh, you know some of the uh, the scene of Barrow Maze. So. Um, if they tried it, I probably just would have had waves of undead come at them until they left, um, and I chased, <laughs> yeah. chased them home. But but uh, they didn't do that. And and also by having everything end in town, um, we can we can the next session we can have uh, if one person can't make it and another one can, it very, it fits into the game world um, dynamic, and off we go for the next adventure. But let me tell you, Odinist is becoming very deft at, fo- at us finding people tied and gagged in rooms. That are like new players, people who lost new characters. We've had two so far. (laughs) Speaking of the resource management aspect of it, one thing I noted that I liked about your introductory text is that you not only pointed out, say, henchmen and hirelings are old school, but then you go on to explain why they're important. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of us old farts tend to take it for granted that we know what it is. But for new people, it's it's not enough to say, well, it's old school, shut up and do it. You know, get, yeah. giving an explanation of why it's important so they can go, oh, okay, I see now. You know, I think that's yeah. a good thing and it isn't in enough old school product. And as I've mentioned on on uh, maybe another episode here on, or on Take Those Hammer, players are notoriously cheap. They do not want to take hirelings because that's mm-hmm. a treasure. Yeah, they've got to understand the the concept though here. You know, XP leeches, man. Exactly. Well, keep in mind if you are just starting out, you've just made your first level character, and you've bought your stuff. A lot of times, you're lucky to have two or three gold pieces left to rub together on your very very first adventure with that character. True. And so you have to be pretty chintzy with hirelings, you know, right out. Unless the you're a magic user. Else. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. Then you're buying the round for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Need a horse? Yeah. I've got all this money, but I can't buy armor or any kind of weapons. Yeah, I bought my stat. I bought a stick. I bought, you know. <laughs> we found we found the stinky room, and I happened to be carrying perfume, empty perfume bottles. Don't ask me why. So we put perfume in them, and now we're going to get ready to go back into the stinky room with no con checks for us, you know. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about the fear factor idea. Yeah, that was kind of neat. Um, how did that uh, come about? Did it? Were you inspired to do that from other games, or did it just come off the cuff? What What made you think about that? Well, I just thought that... Um like you know, when you've played D and D for so long, you think about you have a, fir- a party of first or second level adventures, and you run into some skeletons. It's like, ooh, we ran into some skeletons. You know, the the mystery of it's sort of gone. It's not like that first time you played the game and you ran into undead, and you thought, ooh, this is super cool. So I I just thought that you know we should have something that emphasizes within the context of the game world that an encounter with undead would be pretty freaky. And yeah. we play ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, and there should be um, something to account a little bit for that. And uh, and so that's where where it sort of came from. And um, and we've had people real close to going uh, overboard with it, and, and uh, their character having to spend time in town. But um, 
Uh, it's all, it, it hasn't been a, uh, an impediment to people playing their characters or anything uh, to this point. Cool. Just some counseling and they're, they're feeling much better. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I and I think so, time passes. We, we do real time. So if we finish playing on uh, a Sunday and we don't play for two more weeks, two more weeks passes in the game world. Um, so with, with each week, um, they have their fear factor reduced that they're standing in town, and, and that's why it hasn't really uh, been a problem or what have you. Yeah, if okay. a character does go insane... How do you handle that as a DM? Do you take control of the character, and you know, do they attack their fellow members? Is there a chance of healing their mind once they reach that insanity level? Um, I, like, it depends where it happened. I think if it happened in the dungeon, um, I would probably uh, uh, randomly on the fly determine uh, a course of action, and then from there figure out, uh, you know, a creative. Um, a resolution to it. If it happened in town, um, I'd probably give them an opportunity. You know, if someone was going to run around crazy or whatnot, uh, you know, have an opportunity to grab them, take them to the temple, and see if something can be done. But that could be an interesting side adventure as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, now, the, oh, go ahead. Mike. Well, quick, uh, just a follow up for the yeah. fear factor. Yeah. Is that a in your campaign? Is that a an effect unique? to the Barrow Maze, or does that potentially happen anytime they run into undead anywhere in your campaign world? Um, that's something that's been specific to Barrow Maze. Um, okay, so it's kind of like the turning thing. It's it's endemic yes. to the maze. Okay. Yes. Now, um, you've run this for your group, of course. Have you re- run this any other time for other people? Yes. Um, I ran uh, a session... At uh, Gen Con this past year, uh-huh. and I ran a session at OSRCon in Toronto. And I hope you'll be running one in North Texas. <laughs> but that would be great. I, I'd like to come uh, this year, no doubt about it. That'd be cool. NTRPG.com. But uh, yep. my question, oh, yeah, I know. yeah, definitely. My question was, what is, what stood out to you since you've run it for different people, different groups of people? What's is there any common thing that all the groups do, or something different? When they go through it, um, well, everyone seems in a like everyone wants to get like uh, dungeon delving as soon as possible, right? So you you uh, you come to the the area of the Barrow Mounds for the first time, and it's you know let's go right past the low hanging fruit, get right into that dungeon where you've got the worst case scenario where you have to descend down a rope right. rather than going downstairs. And so it's that's always interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. Like, what what are people going to do? And of course, that's like the worst thing you could do, right? right. And uh, like, I remember playing a session with um, Jason Schultes, who's one of the artists for Barrow Maze, and uh, his character stayed at the top while all the other characters went down. He's like, "There's no way I'm going down there." Like, forget <laughs> it. <laughs> and so he, stayed, he stayed at the top, and the rest of the group were like, you know, a couple rooms in. And uh, finally, he decided he was going to go down. But uh, it was just really interesting to see how different people react to the entrance. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, and, you know, um, I also want to say, sledgehammers, brilliant. <laughs> it took us a session to catch on we needed sledgehammers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting change of pace where, 
you know, just having a Warhammer or a military pick or something wouldn't do. Although that got into a ten, we got into a ten minute argument saying, "I got a Warhammer. Why can't I just hit these things?" Well, yeah, I mean, if you have a if you have a broadsword used for battle and you wail away on a tree or something like that for half of an half an hour, it's uh-huh. going to be it's it's not going to be the same weapon, and it's the same thing. I mean, you, you can't you can't use uh, you know. Uh, standard really weapons on something like a brick wall. I mean, it's just not, you know, most people might hand wave that. I don't know, but I'm not hand waving it. No, I want to make it, it's not about making it easy. It's about making it hard. And it's about, it's about highlighting player choice and that there are, there are consequences and meanings to the choices that you make. So you can choose to go buy it or you can choose to knock it down. Now, if you go buy it, I might have undead burst from behind and come after you from behind. Right. If you choose to knock it down, you'll make a lot of noise and potentially, um, you know, uh, find a random monster. So it's all about player choices, and then you react to the player choices. Second second session, we finally caught on to it. Got some in the town, but it's more like, oh, we got to go get some sledgehammers. And I read through the module. I didn't want to. I was, kept my, I was going like, mm. Just say, guys, you know, there's like two or three places in here where they have sledgehammers. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask. Do you, when you first started running the PCs with that, did you make as DM a suggestion for sledgehammers or something equivalent, or did they get all the way down into the dungeon and then like, oh, we can buy sledgehammers? Uh, No, I'm not. I'm not going to throw any bones. I mean, yeah, it's the it's the experience of it, right? So you get to the mound and. Some have been broken into already, and some have been looted, and what have you, and some haven't. They're still sealed. Okay, well, you know, now it's like, well, what do we do? So then, you know, they tried, um, you know, they had like a standard pry bar, and that's not going to work. If you had a six-foot pry bar, maybe you could do something with that. And, and so they tried those, and then uh, the next time after they, you know, that first foray, they decided, okay, we need we need some equipment here, and then you know, and then things progress from there. Right. Well, we're going to be reviewing Labyrinth Lord in the next episodes, and but I haven't gotten very far into the rules. Is a sledgehammer part of the standard gear you can buy? Um, I think one of my players found them in there. I don't think it's called a sledge, but um, uh, I think it's in there. Yeah. Okay. Well, in that case, I, then yeah, I'm willing to stand corrected, but um, I'm pretty sure it's there. Well, as long as it's there, then, you know, they have an opportunity to look and see that, hey, this might be useful. You know, it's kind of like spiking doors or, you know, that sort of thing. If it's there and you didn't buy it, well, that's your call. Yeah, most of my group does, like, the fast pack, you know, so, you know, like like the fast pack they had in uh, The Lost City. Um, (laughs) So... And, and also, I give them a, a few gold piece savings if they decide to do the fast pack. And, um, you know, if, if, if they're trying to open up, uh, one of the entrances to a mound and, you know, and they're trying this and that, okay, well, what are the possibilities for opening this mound? Do, do we need special tools? Yes, you need special tools. Maybe a sledgehammer? Yes, a sledgehammer would do it. And then when they, if, if they look and they say, well, I don't see a sledgehammer here, okay, well, you know, there's one on the equipment. Consider there, you know, there's one there, and and we'll work from from that point forward. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I must say though, there was one thing I was a little disappointed in. There's no rumor table. <laughs> yes, that's true. Now, having said that, there is a rumor table um, put up on Aramis.com. Uh, ah, okay. 
So yeah. you can grab one. Okay, because I'm a big yeah. fan. Liz and I are both big fans of rumor tables. Okay, you just yeah. got one more star in the review at the end for Mike. <laughs> no, he, he's quite right. It is appropriate to have a rumor table, and I like a good rumor table. And uh, it's definitely one of the glaring omissions from Barrow Maze, and I would agree. Right. You know, on the I other want- hand, there is graffiti, which yeah. not very many dungeons have. That's true. So- so kudos for graffiti. Graffiti and runes and all that kind of stuff. For the graffiti, the first thing I thought of when I read that was, I don't know why, but I first thought Judges Guild. Maybe it's because they have a lot of graffiti in theirs. I'd have to go back and look at some of their modules. But for some reason, I just it made me think Judges Guild. And that's a bad thing? No, no. I'm just saying I'm not entirely sure why it made me think Judges Guild, but I'd have to go back and research. Greg, I consider that I... I it's a compliment coming from me. So sure. <laughs> you know, you know where the graffiti comes from. Uh, I that? took uh, as an undergrad student. I took a course called Sport in Greece and Rome, uh-huh. and then later on, I taught a course <laughs> with the same with the same name. And so, of course, we studied uh, Pompeii and uh, some of the other Roman coliseums and some of the graffiti on them depicting gladiators and uh, and then um, the Etruscans and their foot. Races and things of that nature. So, uh, a lot of a lot of that you find tucked away in little crannies and barrelies. Cool. So yeah. Oh. Knows. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way we're finding just these little tiny things just all over the place. Not not just burial mounds either, but just little tiny things. You know, through the dungeon. It's real fascinating. Well, something else that that caught my attention that I've mentioned on earlier episodes that is a gripe of mine that too many modules or adventures, particularly the older ones, but some newer ones too, seem to ignore the fact somehow the player character party are the only people that ever thought to go raid this place. Oh, they make it clear in there, and and my DM made it clear. It's like, yeah, you you see footpaths. Well, I mean, and there's, well, even beyond that, there's regular possible encounters with other tomb robbers. And I've noticed you don't pull any punches, not adventuring parties, not heroes, tomb robbers, because yeah. that's really what you are. <laughs> yes, you are. In, in the low fantasy, morally ambiguous sense, you, you know, like I, I think I think it's really fun. And I, th- and I can't stand the hero worship of certain games uh, now. But um, I really enjoy the idea where, you know, um, yeah, your your goal is to loot the gold, and uh, it just it brings a smile. It brings yeah. a smile to people's faces, and I really enjoy that idea. And then and then after that, you know, the the uh, the story emerges from play. So yeah, yeah like Spofford and the Gray Mauser, as opposed to Lord of the Rings, and that's yeah. exactly. Yeah, you're you're yeah, a mercenary yeah. exterminator, is what you are. Mm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you out here, since how much do you think you'd change and why, but you've got Barrow Maze 2 out. Is it, did that? Did well, no, that was aimed more at us if we were running it, obviously. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, mean, <laughs> I thought that was a question for Greg. I'm sorry. Uh, well, sorry. Well, so what was the question? Well, is it how, mu- how much do you think you'd change and why? I thought it was a question for you, and that's a question for us. Uh, no, it's a question if, if the three of us, obviously, you know, it's your product, Greg, so, you know, <laughs> you would probably keep it pretty close to the way it is. But if any of us were going to run it, would we change anything and why? Well, first of all, it would be more kobolds for Liz. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. The whole point to Barrow Maze is the undead. I suppose I could have undead kobolds somehow, but um, I don't know. I think, and uh, it would depend on who my players were. If they were, you know, if they were experienced and knew the ropes, I don't think I would change much at all. If they were pretty new to gaming and didn't know a whole lot of what they were doing, I'd probably dial back the lethality a little bit for the brand newbies just to let them get their feet under them. Um, but yeah, on the whole, I think it's a, it's a pretty good product. Okay. It's an excellent product. I would run it as is. Um, I was a little afraid at first because Matt, our DM, came out and said, I'm running Barrel Maze next because he writes like I think. Oh, God. <laughs> but when we got into it, I don't find it all that dangerous for newbie players. I mean, speaking, if, if, speaking from the guy who lost three characters. Well, yeah. <laughs> we started in Thunder Rift, okay? I mean, I'm not saying I lost th- all three of them in Barrow Maze. I lost. Oh, okay. one. it sounded like you lost three in Barrow Maze. No, so. no, 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 no. I get to have that pleasure, uh, but I've watched other people lose in here. We had uh, one guy; those damn cats. Those mummy, oh, those, those were great. The mummy cats. I remember seeing those. Um, they're they're a pretty staple of a lot of Egyptian tombs. Yeah, well, and it's great that you actually made them into monsters. Well, that that monster actually, I think um, it came from either Fight On or Knock Spell, one of the two, and I just took it, tweaked it, and uh, we got some great art from uh, uh, Dave Needham uh, for that monster too. Um, yeah, what what happened? We went into the we went into one of the rooms with the mummy cats in there, and they were just behaving like cats. And the one guy who wasn't there that the DM was playing the character, he says he goes down and pets one, and they immediately start howling. <laughs> Two people, two characters did not make their fear check, did not make their uh, save. One of them ran 50 feet down the hall. Unfortunately, 25 feet down the hall was a pit we already passed. Yeah. He, he fell down, broke his neck. That's the end of the character. <laughs> that happens. That's great. Yeah. Well, so, as for me running it, I think I'd be a compromise. I don't know that I would change any of the adventure itself. Uh-huh. If I was dealing with very new players, I might dial back the fear results a bit. But I would keep, I think I'd keep the rooms as they are because it, it seems pretty well balanced. Although I'm, if I did change anything, I think I'd put a little more, maybe one encounter earlier in the adventure for, to teach the learn when to run away. I mean, you have some in there already, but I might stick something a little earlier in there. Oh, like the uh, like the vampire that you run away from in his illusion? <laughs> no, the vampire that you run away from because he's a vampire. True. But you'd have to have a rationale why he wouldn't just saunter out of the room and, and you know, <laughs> kill them. Which also... Well, my speaking, gr- go ahead. I was just going to say, my group had a very difficult time with the uh, sapphire skeletons, and and so that as soon as they saw them, as soon as they saw skeletons, it was like, okay, they're skeletons. Do they have gems in their forehead? Yes, they have gems. All right, let's flee, and that just <laughs> sort of became. We, and then 
they, when they hit about third level, then it was okay. We can we can do our thing. But anything before that, it was turn and and lift tail. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we learned two things. One, the clerics are now just healing machines. You're not turning it. We, we came up with we, we ran into those skeletons with the gems in the middle, and it's like we had we couldn't turn them. We had a hellacious time with them. Now every time we see a skeleton, does it have a gem in the forehead? No. Yeah. Okay, kill it. Well, were those in uh, random encounters? Because I don't recall that there were many sapphire skeleton encounters in the first say fifteen or twenty rooms. Or am I misremembering that? Oh, right. No. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Glenn. No, I was going to say right up front. I think it was a wander. I think I think he rolled for wandering monsters. Okay, yeah, because I didn't okay. pay much attention I'm to the one. Sorry. sorry, Greg, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, when I when I eat, you know, one of the things that's sort of interesting when I read comments about Bear Maze is that uh, people are saying, "Well, I wish I could see the different sections of the dungeon more delineated," and that was not sort of contrary to the way Bear Maze was created I, because I had. Random tables, uh, like well, t- tables for for situating the monsters, and then random tables for the different areas. But I wanted to make sure that you know you could wander from one area into another area with monsters that were perhaps two hit dice or three hit dice, and not really know it. And then all of a sudden, you start running into you know harder monsters. Okay, well maybe we should backtrack and go somewhere else. So they were complaining that it wasn't the traditional first level of the dungeon, then second, then third. Right. You know, the further you go down, you know the the tougher it's going to be. They're complaining it's not like that. Correct. And, uh, and I definitely did. I did not want to do that. I wanted something that that did that that had some of the same vibe. Like if you notice in Barrow Maze, um, one of the one of the design ideas for Barrow Maze uh, I call familiar and different. And so, uh, in some ways, it seems like, you know, a lot of other dungeon, you know, uh, large dungeons that you, you may have played in, and yet, there are other things that distinguish it uh, on its own. Yeah. And, you know, that's, and, 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 uh, the familiar and different also plays into the different, uh, uh, homage that, that goes on to, you know, uh, film and TV and, uh, fiction and, you know, and, and, uh, D&D and, and RPGs have been parasitic on popular culture right since Gygax started, you know, the whole thing and Dave Arneson. So um, I think that's a really important part of uh, to have those sort of cu- subcultural references or reference that, that people realize, okay, well, you know, I'm playing Barrel Maze and, and oh, I see, he, there's something here that looks like an illustration I saw somewhere else. And, and you bring that understanding into Barrel Maze when you play it. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, yeah, that was actually something that stood out to me that I liked was the fact that it wasn't so delineated of, you know, as long as you don't go downstairs, then you know that you're on a level that's kind of at your speed. And, like, no, I, I don't like right. that. <laughs> I, right. But I've been accused of being an evil DM, so, you know. I don't know. So have I. <laughs> I live with it. Who hasn't? <laughs> I'm the wimp DM of the group, so okay. <laughs> I don't know. I suspect I'm wimpier than you are, Glenn. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah, play Call of Cthulhu with me sometime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you'll survive, believe it or not. Uh, well, the only other point I'd like to bring up before we continue to head on yeah. is that I also like how not only did you t- 
put traps in barrow maze, but you described them, which fits in well with our last episode. Yes. Because for those of us who don't just say, well, make your die roll, and if you did, you found it and disarmed it. It's like, no, you've got to say, where are you looking? Yeah. And, okay, you found the trap, and it's this, you know, pressure plate or, you know, tripwire. How are you, what are you going to do to disarm it? I think that makes being a thief a little more interesting than just roll and go. Well, I, I agree completely. I, for the longest time, I didn't allow thieves because I just said, you know, you're all you're all tomb robbing thieves, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and they all, you know, if you just role play traps instead of the you know the simple die roll, it's a much more engaging experience, yeah. I think. Well, yeah. Well, like we said on the last episode, I mean, it's harder on the DM because you not only have to set a trap, you've got to mentally design it essentially. Yeah. But then it's so much more, you know satisfying when the players can think of how to overcome it than just roll your dice and move on. And let me tell you, it's been a long time. It's been a long time that I've ever seen a 10-foot pole being put to such good use Mm -hmm. in this place. I mean, most dungeons, you don't think about it. You think, oh, a 10-foot pole, what am I going to do with this? You know, stuff like that. We use it maybe once. They're using it constantly in there. I mean, you got some good traps. <laughs> yeah, the ten foot pole. You really need. You, yeah, got to bring that along for sure. We already, we already snapped one in half over that poor Cullis. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. When we get to random encounters, my favorite encounter area is one of your traps. So, so why don't we, but so is there anything else we want to chat about about the adventure itself, without giving away too many spoilers? Um, well, I've just. The, I have the advantage of the fact that I'm running through it, but also the advantage of the fact that we haven't got very far in it. Mm-hmm. So we've got maybe a less than a third of the way through. So there's still some surprises. I noticed the treasure contents. There was a surprisingly constant number of 666 gold or no. 660. Yeah, I, I was curious. Did that, was that just like randomly generated or was that intentional? No, of course, and um, I also, I, if you're paying attention, I do it with structures too, um, and uh, so that that tends to come up. And there are also certain colors that repeat, if you notice. I'll have to remember. I'll have to, oh wow! I'm Black just, and red. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go back and look at this again. Wow. <laughs> it's a bit like a Simpsons episode, <laughs> in that depending on what you're looking for, you may or may not find other things. As long as I don't have to have a couch gag before I get into the dungeon. <laughs> you must have a couch gag, yes. Okay. Well, Liz, hmm? do you have any last minute before we go into random encounters? Uh, well, I did want to ask. Um, I noticed one of the encounters, um, I won't say specifically which one, just in case Glenn has yet to come across it yet. It's, it's okay. I usually forget most of what I read. <laughs> I Cover your ears, Glenn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the traps that you could possibly, you know, take out, you know, you're sealed up in a room and you have a flagstone golem just mm-hmm. peeling itself off of the floor mm-hmm. and attacking you. Um, I'm not sure from the the write-up for the golem, is that actually in one of the Labyrinth Lord supplement books or was that something that you made up yourself for... For the Barrow Maze. 
Um, it, it's um, I think the original source for that came from the Tome of Horrors, oh, okay. and um, I thought that is so awesome. I have to in- include it in some fashion. And we actually had a great experience in that particular room um, because I have one of my players who is very well-intentioned, has a habit of waltzing into rooms. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he, it, I, I love a good isolation trap. I love that. And so of course he goes into the room and down, you know, down the, the stone slab comes and, and, uh, so then he's, uh, this thing peels itself off the floor and he's doing battle and it's not going well. And the other players are trying furiously with their sledgehammers to knock the door down. And, uh, it was a really fun, fun room. I just get this visual in my head of like, a two-dimensional almost sort of monster, like a, a stone piece of paper just kind of curling itself up off the floor and, you know, going at him. It's like, wow. <laughs> it's I get a, a picture. A... No, go ahead. Well, well, no, go ahead. Okay. I was like, I get the picture of almost like, you know, instead of kind of like a Lego monster or something, just kind of assembling itself, but instead of Lego pieces, it's flags, it's the stonework. Yeah, that's a pretty good visual, and um, there's a great illustration on the uh, title page of Barrel Maze 2 done by Corey Hamill that really hits hits the nail right on the head for the flagstone golem, so you can check that one out. Okay. Well, that sounds cool then, so unless something else we want to mention, we'll move into random encounters. We take what we want and leave the rest. Just like your salad bar. Nothing up must leave. Presto! You will come out no more. What? Huh? What'll come out no more? Random Encounters. Random Encounters. Now, unlike the normal take a monster, we... The goal was each of us to take either a monster or an encounter that we particularly liked out of the barrow maze. And we'll start with Liz. Okay. Um, well, there was a lot to choose from, but I think I must say one of my favorites was encounter area number 143, where you have a crypt thing. I love crypt things. They are so cool. <laughs> and, you know, you're thinking it's actually the king, Osric the Wise. Osric the Wise, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it'll actually talk to you a little bit, too, to further make you believe that it is the the skeleton of, or the, you know, withered body of Osric, and then it'll just go, boop, and randomly teleport you somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a nice, um, uh, would be a really, like, my, my group has not found that area, but I think that's a really interesting visual, um, of, you know, of, you know, not to give too much away, I guess, but, uh, of sort of the structure that he's standing on and the size of the room, and I think, I think it'll be really great if they, uh, happen to find that spot. Yeah, that sounds like it would be cool. But then, yeah, Liz likes script things. I find them kind of fun too. They're, you know, something that you can throw at your party, which isn't usually, oh, it's a skeleton-looking being, so it's either a skeleton or a lich. Mm-hmm. Like, well, no, it can be other things. Glenn, anything grab you? What? What? 
What? Oh, wait, sorry. I still have my hands on my ears. Uh, uh, okay, yes. Uh, and it's usually I, – I, one thing stands out, and I think it's due to the player more than the encounter, but I still love the encounter anyway. The phantoms. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran into one behind a curtain, and the player who ran into it failed his fear check and went running. Every, now we've been going back and forth you know been to town and back every single time we pass that one I know there's something in there I'm going to go in there he's, he's, he's made his check twice so now it's like can we just go please no I gotta do this Blah, ah, you know it's like this is a run, turning into a running gag rinse yeah. repeat exactly it's like, oh, there goes Brad with the damn Phantom again. Okay. <laughs> My guys have sort of learned that um, uh, if, the, if they think something like that might be around, they all sort of strategically place themselves ready to grab anybody who comes <laughs> fleeing out of the area, and and then they sort of rope them down and, <laughs> until they can get their senses back. So they've they've run into that enough where they have a strategy that... <laughs> That they approached to the my nine year old grandson has catch a, and release. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my nine year old grandson has a simple solution. He sees somebody doing that, he hits up the head with the bobble of his sword. Well, that'll work. <laughs> so, if you're playing in barrel maze, sledgehammers and rope. Yeah, he's got like not all these little alcoves with uh, curtains, on, which I like curtains instead of doors. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. something different. And tempo poles. And tempo pulse, yeah. And gags. Yes. Because if yes. they're screaming in fear, it's probably going to just attract more monsters. All right, Greg, we got to ask now, what's your favorite encounter? Um, that's a good question. It's probably a tie uh-huh. with um, uh, the uh, barrel weight Rendar Saruk in the Death Vault of the Chosen. Oh, yeah. And there's another one that's much more simple than that one that I really like. Um, it's uh, there's an open pit, and at the bottom of the pit there's um, purple mold. And it's a spiked pit, oh. and uh, so you smell something interesting, and you go over to the pit and you breathe that stuff in, and then you have to save or fall asleep. At which time you'll fall into the spiked pit. <laughs> oh yeah. That's... And so the, the purple mold will then start, you know, uh, working its way over your body, and your fellow adventurers are standing around looking, well, should we throw a torch down there and some oil, or what do we do? It's going to be a really interesting moral decision. <laughs> and, and, of course, they have to hold their breath to look down there to begin with, otherwise... Oh, we, had, we had one character reach into a crypt or whatever and pull his hand out covered with gray ooze. That's excellent. And his solution was light his hand on fire. <laughs> God almighty. He almost lost a charisma point for that one. I think I went to high school with him. <laughs> He's played in my game at some point. <laughs> you have armor on that arm, right? No? Okay. <laughs> the gods blessed him with another one. Yes. <laughs> we said it was going to be a tie, right? Yeah, so there was that one, and then then uh, the Rendar Saruk uh, encounter. Oh yeah, um, the the barrel weight, which was just has the um, amazing illustration um, by Trevor Hammond. Uh, yes, is that the one with the plus one helm? 
Or was that the other guy who was trying to go after the the font uh, of the wall? This is the guy depicted on page 43. Um, so he has the sort of dark burial shroud over him and the um, sort of the gaunt skeletal face. Mm. And... Uh, well, I remember at one time that you mentioned the magic item of a plus one helm, and I wasn't. Is that a labyrinth lord thing, or no, I mean, no, no? That, that's me. Okay, is that just like a generic plus one to AC, or just yeah, that's for right. Yeah, that's right. Or, okay, yeah, like a I, like a plus one shield or something like that. And I just think that you know helms could be way more interesting uh, than they are, and. Um, so, and I also like to throw in uh, the odd thing, you know. So, you know, they're everybody's working from an understanding, a certain understanding of you know what magic items normally are, and and I like to throw a curveball in there every once in a while to m- let them know. Like, so what I do is I say, okay, you know, here's the text. You know, this is the one we're working from. Um, I may or may not choose to stick close to the text. And that way, it just leaves a question mark in their minds that they they might you know they think they know what they're going to encounter, but they don't know they know, so to speak. Oh, and by the way, my grandson was the one who found the conical cap. He wears it now. <laughs> Excellent. He yeah, we had loves a... he loves pulling rabbits out of that thing. <laughs> What's down? Great. Oh, I don't know. Let me pull a rabbit out and let, let it go down. <laughs> Trip, trippity traps. Yeah, another fun one is the uh, Fenrir's Faithful Compass. <laughs> My guys have yet to roll sufficiently to find anything that they want. It's <laughs> <laughs> so it always points back to Barrow, or Barrowcrest or you know the local town. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because I, I like the rationale you had for that in there. You know, Thanks. what's what's important. <laughs> to a bunch of tomb robbers. Well, may not be what you think. Uh, uh, well, what was the prize what? at the end of this again? We're, you're looking. There's there's a certain goal at the end. Uh, oh, um, throwing the font of law. Yeah, yeah. I th- we're trying to accomplish that. That's part. See, we're, we we put it in Kelvin in Mistara because mm-hmm. uh, we're using uh, Rule Cyclopedia. Sure. And. Uh, we're trying to do this to get something else we can get back to Thunder Rift. So this is all part of a, like a, we're chasing Zanzertam. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, this is all working into that, which is really not the way he integrated. It's really nice. This thing just fits perfectly into it. Well, I've got a wonderful story for you on that front because something happened uh, in my, in my Barrow Maze game that I did not anticipate when I created the dungeon uh, the person carrying the font of law fell down a bottomless pit. Oh! <laughs> uh, yeah. Now Oops. what? Now what? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to go to the next rewrite, yeah. Yeah. So, um, the Maze too, yeah. Yeah, so they need to uh, carouse or something to find an alternative solution, and they've not done that yet. But uh, I'll, I will whip up something interesting for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you have homages in here? Oh, yes. Um, there, There's probably more than there should be. And, it, you know, I I really like D- D&D and, and RPG lore. Uh-huh. You know, like the stuff that, you know, uh, you know, makes the rounds on the Internet or um, in, in TV shows that reference the game or that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um 
you know, so one of the illustrations, for example, has uh, a, a depiction of Tim the Enchanter from um, uh, the Monty Python uh, Quest <laughs> for the Holy Grail. You can call me Tim. Tim. And um, another depicts uh, Nicole Williamson, who played Merlin in Excalibur. Ah, yes. Mm. Um, uh, Sir de Auvergne is... Um, uh, that's just sort of an uh, uh, anagram for... Uh, Averwan or Averwanya, depending on where you learned your French, for uh, um, Clark Ashton Smith. Smith. Okay, yeah, I was going to say. Um, Pinto's con- yeah, it's familiar. So. Pinto's conical cap was just, uh, uh, we think that Pinto's, the car, are really funny, and that that's a good name for, you know, some archmage uh, pyromancer. And so we ju- I just started riffing on that. Well, he put it on the start. We started calling him Presto, so... Because yeah. back in the day, Pintos were notorious for getting hit in the back and spontaneously fire. Yes. <laughs> Actually, one of my guys is uh, in my game is in his early twenties, so you know he doesn't he knows some yeah. of these references, but you know he doesn't know who uh, uh, Harryhausen is, and so when I include references to that or um, um, a. There was a show that that made the rounds in Southern Ontario uh, when I was a kid, um, called the Hilarious House of Frankenstein. Frankenstein, and, yes. And uh, so on that show, um, one of the uh, one of the uh, actors did uh, a sketch called Griselda the Ghastly Gourmet, and so that uh, appears in Barrowmaze too because I I loved the show when I was a kid, and no wonder I have such a warped mind when it comes to you know fantasy and that sort of thing because it was a pretty weird show if you're a little kid. And um, so, a Federal's Faithful Compass is just a riff off the compass in um, parts of the Caribbean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, I like to include uh, things like that. And then there are textual references and things like that. Cool. Osric. Le- less obvious. Yeah, Osric. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the graffitis that you might randomly come across will say, Beware the tentacle beast. It ate gall staff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, yes, and, he wasn't able to cast magic missile in time. He was not. And one of the pre-gens was Pardue, the holy yeah. man. Yes. Holy man. From Mazes and Monsters. Mazes yes. and Monsters. Okay. Yes. What, Blackleaf wasn't in there anywhere? <laughs> no, Blackleaf was not in there. Couldn't, I couldn't wedge that one in. <laughs> He's levitating over in the corner. Uh, no, his dead body's levitating over there. Uh, or something. <laughs> With the help of a rope. Yes. Um, I had one question that... I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, I had one question that my DM wanted me to ask you. Um, Are those your original wandering monster tables, or did you get them out of what book, or if at all? Yeah, everything in Barrow Maze was custom done. So the tables... The, the treasure tables, the, um, the, the monster tables, how the, how the Barame, how Barame's was populated, and then the random, um, uh, monster tables, all that was custom done. And so what I do is if I had a, a table, say, of 20 monsters, um, I, I would probably have monsters of, say, if it's in the first area, roughly one hit dice, and then, um, you know, number 18 would be consult table two. 19 would be consult table 3, and, and then last one, consult table 4. So you had the possibility of running into a monster who was much more powerful than your characters could anticipate. Okay. Okay. Cool. Michael? 
Uh, <laughs> I blanked. I've been waiting to ask this question. And now that you, oh, yeah, my favorite. <laughs> Again, it was a tough choice, but I uh, think I would go with room 157. And that is the one with the particularly wet trap. Right. Let me um, check that out. Oh, yeah. Giving too many spoilers away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, that gave kind of a cinematic tension builder there when when the PCs are caught in it. It's better hurry, better find something, because... Oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. 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 yeah, like, that's a classic trap, you know what I mean? And, uh... And that's the thing, yeah. I, like a lot of a lot of Baromes, um I like archetypes. Um, you know, I'm not interested in playing a, a dwarven monk or whatever. Um, <laughs> I want to play. I want to play the uh, the halfling thief, or you know, the halfling, or the you know, elven uh, elf or uh, fighter magic user, that sort of thing. And, uh, and and then so when I when it comes to thinking about Baromes, I think one of the reasons why it resonates is that there's a lot of classic. Um, uh, traps and things of that nature in there, uh, and that the one that you just noted with the water is certainly at the one of the, at the top of the list. Very similar to you know the inevitable room squishing you, you know the yeah, walls. Yeah, the walls closing. coming in on yeah. you. Or... Exactly, yeah, and those are fun. Yeah, there's a way out, but can you find it? Yeah, and, and we need to remember, you know, like um, if you if you. Grew up with the game, uh, you've probably played rooms that have done that. Um, but if you didn't grow up with the game and, um, you know, in terms of, you know, basic or AD and D, then maybe you haven't run into those. And like when I mentioned, um, Minoton, who would the, uh, you know, the, uh, sort of the iron, um, Minotaur looking golem from one of the Sinbad movies. Mm-hmm. You know, some of my guys don't even know that reference. Oh boy. And so I think that it's important to sort of bring these forward, uh, for people who are new to old school gaming and expose them to some of the, you know, interesting things that, uh, that we were exposed to when we started playing. Right. Yeah, I don't have it anymore, but for a while I'd had a Ral Partha mini I really liked. It was uh, a Cyclops. But it had one horn and had goat legs. I've got that like, one. Yeah, like the, um, the, what was it, uh, Jason and the Argonauts? It was Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Harry yeah. Housen? Yeah. Or Roger Corman, one or the other. I can't remember which one. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's pretty iconic for anyone growing up in the 70s, oh, 60s yeah. or 70s. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I remember that one. Okay. So, Anything else regarding encounters people want to talk about? I think I've pretty much talked it. <laughs> I was a little surprised that um, regarding tomb robbers, you know, for the ones that you ran into either randomly or random generated, uh, there was never any chance of maybe running into magic users or stuff with it. Was that a conscious choice just for ease of play or was that intentional? No, I think that um, you, you get the. I think it was more saving that for, um, like, if if there's a pecking order in terms of the the game, right? You you 
the PCs are thinking that they're sort of at the top of the heap. Right. Um, but, but they're really just a half step above the tomb robbers. And, uh, in, you know, you've got the groups of the, the acolytes of Orcus and the necromancers of Set. And so I, I think I didn't make a conscious choice there, but I, I was probably thinking that, uh, I'm going to have those areas covered. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it would okay. it'd be, and I also suggest, you know, use the pre-generated characters as uh, a party if you want to. That's and, true. And uh, throw them, them at the PCs. Yeah, we, we've, we haven't run into the, the priests or the necromancers yet, but, boy, we got a lot of mongrel men. Oh, well, yeah. I'm, uh, and I'm glad you use those. Nobody uses those very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Although, speaking about your uses, um, was this originally... Designed for AD and D? No, it was um, st- it was straight up Labyrinth Lord um, oh, okay. with with the and then what happened was um, because most of my players grew up with either second edition or um, with third edition, they wanted uh, the distinction between race and class. Mm-hmm. And then so when the Advanced Edition Companion came out, we um, I included that because they wanted the division. And then um, uh, and then it was just sort of – I'm trying to keep it as basic as I can, but I really cut my teeth on uh, – you know, I went – I started with Moldvay and then very quickly went to AD&D. So mm-hmm. I have this, this subconscious desire to make it more A&D, AD&D-like. Uh, and it, it probably looks that way, and yet I'm trying. It's like this constant push and pull between the two things. I'm trying to keep it simple, and yet I want to kind of make it more AD and D ish. So we use the Chrome of AD and D, but we don't use mm-hmm. the, the mechanic. Well, and all joking aside, we've even did an episode trying to point out that you know there's plenty of stuff from AD and D you can import into your oh, yeah. classic games. I mean, Absolutely. despite what certain people may have said, even Gary at one time, they are not completely different games. Agreed. No. Yeah, we we use the the basic engine, and then mm-hmm. pull aspects of uh, AD and D in where we want interesting stuff. We're using yeah. we're using Rules Cyclopedia, but Matt or Matt is also using the treasures from Labyrinth Lord and the monsters from Labyrinth Lord and the Advanced Edition Companion. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we got a good mix there. Yeah, that's that's perfectly fine. That's a good game. Yeah. yeah. Anything else, Liz? No, I think we're cool. Um, although looking at the um, the open game license, you know, stuff at the end. Um, and this is probably unavoidable considering that this is, you know, barrows and crypts. You have a disturbing amount of monsters from the Tome of Horrors, I noticed. <laughs> yeah. The ratio is like, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> You're really making me have to buy that book at the convention, I tell you right now. <laughs> well, I, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I, everything's custom done. I mean, just so, you know, I'm referencing, but you can modify the content, uh-huh. of course, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what I do. Um, so, you know, I make them the way I'd like to see them, and in many cases, they're, um, they're, you know, it's back converted from the third edition uh, Tome of Wars, mm-hmm. and so I just wanted to make sure, of course, that like all people do, that I got my backside covered, and that seemed to be the most logical thing to do. Good idea. Good idea. All right, well, let's head into products of your imagination, and we can talk about it as an actual product. 
Okay. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Where are the Cheetos? They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons game. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. I'm attacking the darkness. Yeah, anyway. okay. <laughs> Products of your imagination. Well, we'll discuss it as a physical, if I can use the term for anything, a physical product. Namely, the art, layout, font, Ease of read organization. Yes, on all counts. Yes, it has organization. Yes, <laughs> yes it has art. That's very helpful, Glenn. Thank you. Yeah. It has can I go, thoughts, too. Can I go home now? Yes. <laughs> you are home. Oh, that's right. <laughs> anyway, um, I like the layout for it. Like I said, you know, it's because it doesn't do the level thing, it's all kind of a straight line. Well, I won't say straight line because that makes it sound like it's it's almost railroady because it is not. Um, but organizationally, I found it very useful and easy to find things when I needed to. I especially liked how at the end of each monster, for monsters that are new in the game, you give the um, page number in the back. Yeah. So you can go right to it if you need to know any special abilities or such like. Yeah, uh, we DMs are tired, and we need all the help we can get. Yes. Um, on the other hand, there was something that uh, Necromancer Games used to do that annoyed me, which was okay. they would literally reprint. I mean, granted, it was for 3E, but even still, they rep- what amounted to reprinting the entire entry at every single encounter. Oh, that stinks. So- it's like having the entire write-up from the Monster Manual or the, or the middle of the basic book repeated over and over. And it just felt like, you know, wow, you cut all that out and a third of this module is gone. You know, I, I, it just felt like – I know they probably didn't mean it that way, but it really felt like it was padding it. I much rather like like the idea of the stat line along with a quick reference if you need more data. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that uh, we have the advantage that, you know, early editions were just so nice and concise, and we should be playing to that any chance we get. Oh, yes. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, I'm constantly going back and looking at, like, Judges Guild stuff and early, you know, TSR stuff and going, mm-hmm. you know, they just got right to it. Boom. There it is. There's your info. Go. Yeah. Well, Liz, as a artist and a graphics des- graphic designer, what do you think? Uh, it's a very good layout, um, good choice of typefaces. Nothing is too difficult to read. He's not using, you know, black letter style calligraphy anywhere where you're squinting and going, what? You know, oh, it, Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Okay. You know, while it may look very medieval and authentic, it can be difficult to, you know, tell what the heck you're reading on the, in those cases. Um but yeah, a lot of good choices were made on the setup, and the art is fantastic. And I know you do not have to have the illustration booklet to run Barrow Maze, mm-hmm. but I would suggest if you possibly can, 
go ahead and get it because there are some great illustrations there too. It's very Tomb of Horrors reminiscent and, you know, there's just a lot of good art in all of the Barrow Maze products. You know, I could not say anything better about the art. And Liz is an art snob, so, you know. Yep. <laughs> and that's, that's, uh, on, I appreciate it. And that's honestly, that's testimony to the artists. Um, Dave, ne- Dave Needham and, uh, Corey Hamill and Stephen Pogue and, you know, all, all of them. I'm leaving people out, but they're just brilliant people to work with and, uh, and would come through for me, uh, every time. And I, I want to acknowledge all of them. They did a great job. I cried the first time I read through here and looked at the illustration. <laughs> my ego cried. Why am I not doing this? But, uh, yeah, it's uh, this is the kind of black and white I aspire to do. It's just wonderful stuff. Um, you know, evocative, so evocative. I, could, I, just, I know art is expensive, but I... Again, going back to what Liz said, when I was back in the day running the S-series modules, I thought the illustration books were just awesome because you've got a red, ready-made picture. Well, what do you see? Here. There you go. A picture literally is worth a thousand words. Yes. And, you know, in some of the more complicated to describe chambers, you know, having a good picture you know, can save a lot of time and confusion on everybody's part. Um, you didn't the- say that the gargle's fourth arm was broken off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's right um, here in the picture, so, you know. Yeah. And another thing that I liked about the art throughout the module was you have a really good blend of, you know, ah, what am I trying to say here? You've got some, you've got comedic pieces and you've got very serious and dark pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good mix of everything. And I think no matter what your personal taste is when it comes to module art, you're going to find some stuff in here that appeals to you. I like the um, – so sorry. Uh, no, I was ahead. just going to say I like the high contrast black and white art. Yes. Um, because what I explained to all the artists with Barrow Maze, um, this place is dark, and it that needs to come across in the art. And uh, so I, that's one of the reasons why the high contrast stuff is uh, works well in that uh, in this in Barrow Maze. Um, and I also think you know um, there are a lot of illustrations with lanterns and with torches, and I think that's really important that you know you to, to demonstrate through the art that you've got enough light for you to see and that's it. Yeah. Now there's a great piece of a halfling, you know, just running like hell and this, you know, dark shadowy figure looming out of a pat archway behind him and he's just got the expression on his face like ah! <laughs> he's dropped his dagger. He's like, ah! <laughs> it's, like, it's scary and yet funny at the same time. I love yeah. that one. <laughs> Which, getting back to your comment about comedic and very dark, I mean, to me, that just epitomizes old school D&D. Oh, yeah. You had your moments of humor and your moments of, oh, my God, we're all going to die. Yes, exactly. And that's why you, in Barrow Maze you see there's art that depicts the mundane. 
So we're listening at a door. We're 10 foot pulling the stone and work in front of us. We're looking into an alcove. So I, I like the depiction of the mundane. And then having said that, uh, the mundane is broken by those moments of sheer terror. Yeah. When, you know, you realize that you are outclassed in the engagement and it's time to lift tail <laughs> and bug out. And so. Yeah, and 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 then the other part is, you know, I lo- I love art that uh, whether it's actually in the text or it's in the monster section mm-hmm. that depicts adventurers getting their asses handed to them, <laughs> uh, and that's that's Errol Otis in a nutshell. Oh yeah, I mean every almost every depiction you would see um, the the mon- like the adventurers um, usually are getting you know. They're in some terrible predicament. They're surrounded. Um, they're, um, you know, the monsters uh, are are uh, larger than the PCs. Um, they take up the majority of the visual space, right? And they're in. They're depicted in the foreground, or they're depicted. Um, you know, they're elevated above the adventures, d- d- demonstrating their symbolic superiority. And uh, and and you know, that's just that's just great stuff. I mean, how can you not extrapolate from there in the stuff you want to make? Last year, I met Errol at North Texas, and I had a first printing of Deities and Demigods. I told him he gave me nightmares with his Cthulhu stuff. And he just started pawing through my book and throwing through it. Yeah, look at that. He's getting his butt kicked. Yeah, he's just like, he's <laughs> like a giddy 15 year old. You know, it's like, yeah, look at this one. Oh man. Like this. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, the, the, the art, the cover piece for Barrel Maze 1 by Stephen Pogue. Uh-huh. Um, that had, uh, that's what we call, um, dramatic irony. So when the viewer uh, looks at the scene and knows more than the characters do in the scene, uh, that's an example example of uh, a dramatic irony. And that's used, of course, to create suspense, or it can be for comedic effects. So um, the famous one, of course, is uh, Tramp- Trampier's um, A Giant Spider in the AD&D Monster Manual. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's... And it's that implied narrative where you know the fighter is up front and has, and you can see the cobwebs in front of him, but he's paying no attention to the giant spider above him. And then, of course, the moment is frozen in time because there's somebody at the back of the party pointing at the giant spider. Right, so that's half second right before the fighter's going to get his butt kicked. Yeah. And uh, so we did the same sort of thing in um, in the cover art where the halfling is pointing to the uh, barrel weight. Um, who's coming down the hallway as the party's being attacked by zombies? Oh, uh, whoever did the uh, was it Crom who did the Barrel White, the big picture? Uh, um, on page forty forty two. Forty two. It's a full page of Barrel. It's also a small one in the monster section. Yeah, no, that's Trevor Hammond. That's the um, Trevor Hammond. It's gorgeous. Oh yeah, he's Hammond's got such an excellent um, aesthetic. <laughs> And he put Kirby dots in there. I love it <laughs> for the magic. That's just brilliant. Uh, God, I I can gush all day on this guy. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's very, very good, very talented. And um, he did, uh, you know, as I was creating Barrel Maze and the art would come in and I would just look at his stuff and go, yeah, like he's he's really spot on with with the vibe i'm going for oh, yeah. and then he, he did a few other pieces um for barrel maze too as well so um was very pleased with that work uh, 
too. Looking, looking forward to seeing that. Now, question regarding the purchase of the items. Uh, do you have a print-on-demand option, or is it pretty much just the PDF from RPG Now? No, you can get the print-on-demand from RPG Now. Okay, they do uh, have an option then. Oh, okay. yes. Yeah, and uh, the reason um, why I went uh, with RPG Now rather than Lulu is that uh, Lulu is uh, has a very expensive shipping if you're considered international. So, uh, being in Southern Ontario, they, you know, they're gonna cost me twice, um, you know, what it would Ouch. cost for RPG now. Oh yeah. And, you know, I, I watch my gaming dollars too, so it just made more sense for me to go to RPG now and do it there. Yeah. And yeah. you've got a better, greater likelihood of catching your core audience. Attention, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there's a, a group of people that go to Lulu and perhaps don't go to RPG Now as often. Uh, that's sort of what people have told me. But mm-hmm. um, uh, as time goes along, I'll try to put it on both platforms. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's give it a review then. Value for price, excellent. How about that? <laughs> dragons, remember? Dragons, yes. Dragons. The memory's going. Old guy, in the ba- old guy in the back, remember? Old guy in the back, since you're talking, you go first. I'm going to give it four and a half because I just want a little wiggle room there. Oh, screw it, five. I love it. I mean, oh, screw it, five. Oh, screw it, five. William Glenn Judge. I, I'm, lo- I'm loving it even as I'm getting my butt handed to me while I'm playing it right now. But since you haven't lost a character yet, obviously not nearly enough. Odinist, if you're listening, kill him. No, I just see the carnage. It's like Vietnam, you know. You just see them and you go. Anyway, five. All right, Liz. Um, I like it a lot too. I'm only going to give it four and a half, though. Four and a half. Four and a half. Um, I I think it's very good. It is excellent. Um, there's a there's a few things I would do differently, but that's inevitable. I think every Every DM's going to read a module and think to themselves, you know, I'll just tweak it just a little bit over here. But it it is definitely worth the money to get, by all means. And any tweaking you may want to do, not going to be a whole lot, and it's going to be real easy. Well, normally I'm the grumpy guy with the lowest grade, but this time I think I'm going to go with Glenn and have a five. I'm really impressed with this thing. If Liz hadn't read it, I would run her through it and kill off a lot of characters. <laughs> oh, come on. She can't have that good a memory. This is mm. true. You could probably but wait a couple cruelly, of Cruelly, <laughs> cruelly true. Maybe we can run it at North Texas RPG or something. Yes. Well, don't let her see Barrow Maze 2 then. And that goes to like 4.75, 4.85, something like. Which is one of our highest scores. It is. It is. Yeah. And we're given to understand that Barrow Maze 2 has just come out. It has. Um, in the spring, I ran uh, an Indiegogo campaign for Barrow Maze 2, and thankfully there are people who supported it. And um, so I crafted uh, Barrow Maze 2, and um, with that, we did the illustration booklets for uh, 1 and 2, and we did a combined poster map that was like 26 inches by 30 inches. Wow. Um, done in old-school blue. And um, so it's really... It's a tribute to the people who wanted to see Barrow Maze 2 happen because if if no one was interested, it just wouldn't happen. It's as simple as that. And so I just want to thank everybody that, that saw something in Barrow Maze that made them want to contribute to it, and I really appreciated it. 
And what are the prices for Baramaze 1 and 2? Um, that's a good question. Uh, off the top of my head, um, I know I for the, I had Barrel Maze one at like six dollars and sixty six cents for like a, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> and I only did that because I thought it was funny and um, and I mean I don't know I just I it was like a home thing you know what I mean and um, right. and I just thought well you know okay I'll I'll find some art and um and I'll I'll do the best I can with the layout and uh, and go from there. And, um, and then so after the bear, after the Indiegogo campaign was over, um, I pumped some more, um, money into it, um, for illustrations and to fill out some spaces in the layout that needed to be addressed and to bring it sort of up to snuff with where Barrowman's 2 was at. So the price went up, um, a bit. I think it went to 1666 or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, the il- illustration books are expensive, um, but uh, they were extremely expensive to create. Although it seems, you know, like a six-page um, uh, booklet, uh, you're looking at like 17 illustrations. And when you're doing the cost per page plus the cost to, because we actually did print uh, illustration books yeah. on 18. 18- or 80 pound paper or whatever. And, uh, it was really, really expensive and they went over budget. So they're a little bit more expensive than I'd like them to be, but that's sort of where that's at. I think they're, I think they're 16 bucks or something. Well, like that. art's expensive. I mean, yeah. it, it is. And, uh, it, it really is. And, and you know what? People worked with me on the, on prices too. And, uh, the artist did. And I really appreciated that or it wouldn't have happened. Well, as a final point, I'll just say as a mega dungeon, as much as I liked the, the original Rapanathuk from Necromancer Games, and they recently put out their Swords and Wizardry version, which I was really looking forward to, then I saw the price point on it, and it's like $120, $130. Mm. And I'm like, this is much better value for money, and in my opinion, is even better, especially for low to mid level characters. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So what I need, I got one more. One more? One more. One more question. What you got in the future? Um, well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I'm taking, uh, some time, <laughs> um, because I, um, Barrow Maze 2 was, uh, uh, you know, over twice the size. Like Barrow Maze 1 was about 30,000 words. Barrow Maze 2 is, uh, 70,000 words. Wow. And so, um, I need to sort of recharge the brain cells a bit from that experience. Oh, yeah. So, um, but I have a, an idea to do a couple, like, I don't know, I hope they're not going to be railroads, but more traditional 32-page dungeons. How's that? Like dungeon crawls? Um, and I, I've got something I want to do um, similar to uh, Aaron Alston's Treasure Hunt. I don't know if you remember that. Ah, uh, yes. Module. Yes. I, I really love that module, and I played it, I DM'd it a gazillion times yeah. and uh, for zero-level characters, yeah. And uh, so I want to do something like that, um, sort of a mini sandbox, if you will. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that sounds great. I'm yeah. looking forward to those. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. And so... We're headed down the sad Barrow, road. Barrow Road. Barrow Road. With the <laughs> with the Incredible Hulk theme music playing in the background. Bill Bixby walking down the road. And how are you walking, Glenn? Um, I'm running from the Phantom and those damn cats. 
with my ten foot pole in front of me, I'm using it as like a. Uh, it's uh, now a five foot pole. It's now a five foot <laughs> pole. Yes, I was gonna. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, there I go. How about you, Liz? I was going to say, I'm running right alongside that halfling. <laughs> to get away from that dark, shadowy critter. <laughs> I'm swimming because for no apparent reason, the area around me keeps filling up with water as I'm looking for a secret door. And, and behind us, we all got Greg back there going, ah! <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm in, in the back of the adventurer cart. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tied up with a gag. Because, you know, just a few more weeks and then he'll recover his fear points from doing Barrel Base 2 and he can get back to work. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show, Glenn. Yep. Uh, Glenn. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> I'll come back thanks next for, time, too, okay? <laughs> thanks for having me. I really appreciate it and enjoy talking to all three of you. And- Thank you, great. I yeah, I must say it's it's really great to have the authors of product on because there's so many questions that we just sit there and go, wonder why he did that, and it's nice to actually have the person here to ask, why did you do that? Yeah. So anyway, good to usually see. The, usually the answer is to kill PCs. <laughs> and what more answer do you? Need? <laughs> I've never good played. Night, I'm, I'm never playing Monopoly with you. Uh, <laughs> good night, everybody. Arc. Goodbye.